good to be with you today, this Lord's Day. Let me ask you to take your Bibles or apps or bulletins, whatever it may be, and uh, turn to our passage for the day, 1 Samuel 7. I mentioned back in December, we were studying the Gospel of Luke, and I, I mentioned that we had not done that only for December to get to study the Christmas story, but we're going to continue in the Gospel of Luke and just go straight through to the end, and that is still the plan. This is just a short one-week hiatus in First uh, Samuel, and I'll tell you why uh, after we read our passage and pray together. But, but first, I'd like to, to read this story for us. It's a maybe at least a little bit well-known story. You might recognize parts of it. Uh, certainly parts of it will probably strike you as uh, unfamiliar. But I'm going to read from 1 Samuel chapter 7, verses 3 through 14. And as is our custom here at New Life, uh, if you're able, would you please join me in standing as we hear God's holy word read to us. 1 Samuel start, uh, chapter 7, starting in verse 3. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel... If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day, and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were routed before Israel. The men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Beth-car. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for your word. We pray that you would, by the power of your spirit, now open your word to us. Lord, that you yourself would be our teacher during this time, uh, that it would be, as you have promised, a means of your grace to open the eyes of our hearts that we might see Christ that you would build us up in faith and love and in hope through your word, that you would edify us, build your people. Lord, encourage the saints through your word. We pray in the name of and for the sake of Jesus Christ our Lord. 
Amen. Please be seated. Well, this last year, uh, last week rather, we celebrated New Year's. And perhaps if you're like me, I always get a bit reflective this time of year and tend to spend some time, uh, which I very much enjoy, reflecting back on the year that has just been, uh, what has happened, the highs, the lows, as well as looking forward also to the year that is coming and thinking about what sort of things I'm anticipating, hoping for, dreaming of for the year 2020. And for me, uh, to do that, to, to reflect and to think back on things uh, over the year, especially at this time, comes pretty easily to me. Like, that's just part of who I am, just by, by nature and by personality. I'm a reflective person, and so uh, it comes very easy for me to spend some time reflecting like that. But what doesn't come naturally to me is to reflect by faith which is what I want to do, is to reflect not merely on what has happened, you know, the goods, the bads, was I happy, was I sad, did I like it, did I not, but rather to reflect by faith and to look back not merely on the events but on God's faithfulness and and to consider how the Lord was with me, how he walked with me through both the highs and the lows, to consider what perhaps he was trying to teach me through those things or to consider just his own faithfulness and his own presence that he never left me nor forsook me. As well as to look forward by faith and not merely to look forward to to the coming year and to sort of indulge my own dreams about what I hope to accomplish this year or things that I hope will happen, but to look forward by faith and to, to spend some time considering what it means for me that I desire as a believer to walk not by sight, but to walk by faith and to go into this new year thinking, what am I trusting the Lord to do or to be for me in this coming year? How, what does it look like for me and how am I planning to, to walk into this new year with open hands, to, to hold things loosely, to, to let the Lord be my shepherd, to let him be my guide, to, to trust him that he goes with me and goes before me into all things. And so as I've been thinking on these things, uh, I've been thinking on this passage and my desire was, to take this brief one-week break from the Gospel of Luke in order to share these reflections with you from this passage in 1 Samuel. This is a story that I believe helps guide me in my reflections, that helps give some shape and some structure to them, that helps guide them in, in the path of reflections by faith, not by sight. So here's my three topics, my three points uh, for this passage. What I want us to, to think on is first, God's mercy Second, God's method. And third, God's memorial. But we need to see God's mercy in this passage and perhaps the even unusual way that his mercy is displayed. The the story starts with Israel's deep need for mercy. They have a deep need for mercy in this passage and we could really go back several chapters in the story to to bring it all out, but Israel is not having a, a good time Uh, These are chapters where they're being constantly attacked by the Philistines. Um, They're not being particularly faithful to the Lord. At one point, they took the Ark of the Covenant, which is perhaps the holiest object that was meant to reside in the tabernacle, and they took it out to battle with them as though it were a a rabbit's foot or a talisman or something that was just going to provide luck. Like God would go with them if they had the Ark there, and so they bring the Ark of the Covenant out to battle, and they lost it. 
the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant. Whoops. And, and so this has been a really kind of a disaster of several chapters here for Israel. They've actually gotten the Ark back at this point, uh, but they're having these problems still with the Philistines. And so they have cried to the Lord, and, and Samuel is here, and Samuel is judging the people uh, in this passage. And, and, and I, I identify with this. Oftentimes what happens, um, at least for me, in reading the Old Testament, is step one is always I read the passage, and I kind of, I, I kind of scoff at the Israelites and think, oh, how could anyone be so dim-witted? Right? These poor Israelites. But step two is, is always to, to realize, like, oh, that really helps me identify with them. Like, I, I can actually see myself in there. I probably would have done the same thing. I, I continue to do the same thing. That is me. And so, like, I do the same thing with this passage. Um, here's Samuel's introduction. And this is where we picked it up in verse 3, where he, he simply begins by saying, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart. Put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So here Samuel shows first why the need for mercy because the Israelites have been worshiping the false gods. Right? They, have been, uh, they have been worshiping the gods of the Philistines, the Ashtaroth, uh, these foreign gods, and he's, they've been running to them, which is a, a bit ironic, right? And we'll come to this later, that they are worshiping the gods of their, their deepest enemies who continue to attack them. But Samuel is filling us in, and he paints this picture of Israel's deep need for mercy. And here is the beginning of mercy. This is the offer of mercy, in fact. Uh, we might not see that at first, but that's what this is. This is the offer of God's mercy and the mercy is exactly this. Repent. Turn away from these gods. Put away the false gods that you have been worshiping and return to the Lord. And that is not just a call to repentance. It's not just a call to forsake their idolatries. What we see is that that, that is itself part of the mercy. Right? It is a mercy for us to be called away from our idolatries. Because the, the reality of idolatry is, although we have this you know, internal like, compulsion, you know, we, we build up these things and we give our lives to them and we think they're going to make us happy, we think they're going to give us a sense of purpose and a sense of direction, a sense of identity. Right? So we build our lives on these things which are idols. And so and on the one hand, it feels very painful when we hear that God is calling us to give those things up. Because we think, how could I give this up? This is what I'm building my life on. But on the other hand, don't we recognize that itself is a great mercy to be called away. To be called away from our idolatries and to be told by the Lord, put these things away. You think they are life. But that is the great deception. You think you find joy and peace and direction in these false gods, whatever it may be, whether it's money or power or respect. Uh, leisure, whatever the world has to offer that your own heart is tempted by and drawn to, we think those are the answer, and God simply says, that's not. They're, they're deceitful, they don't give you joy, they rob you of joy, and so in his mercy, he's, he's calling the people, put those things aside. Put those things aside. They do not lead to the path of life that you seek. This is one of the Bible's very important principles for us about idolatry, 
The Bible always shows us this classic principle, and I've said it before, is that sin makes us stupid. Sin makes us stupid. It makes us think we're going to find real life and happiness in worldly things that cannot possibly deliver on the promises that they make. And so here, all of Israel is choosing to honor and to embrace and to worship these false gods of the Philistines, the very people who keep attacking them and killing them and destroying them. And God, in his mercy, says, I can deliver you from this. Right? They have this weird love-hate relationship. They hate the Philistines, but they love their gods. They're going to worship them. And God steps in in his mercy and says, I can deliver you from this craziness. I will deliver you, and the first step in deliverance is repentance. That's the first step in receiving God's mercy, is saying, I will set these things aside. I will agree these are not where life comes from. We will agree that sin has made us stupid and caused us to look in all of the wrong places to find life and identity and purpose. We do those same things. Right? It's easy for us to read a story like this and to shake our heads and say, those silly Israelites worshiping the false gods of their enemy, but do we not do the same thing? Right? We, we think that money is going to be the path to happiness. And so what do we do? What do we sacrifice? Wow, we work so hard to attain it. We sacrifice leisure time in order to pursue riches. You sacrifice family time. Perhaps you sacrifice time with the Lord. All in the pursuit of worldly riches, something that the Bible says will kill you. We do the exact thing that the Israelites are doing. Perhaps the idolatry that we truly seek after in life is approval, respect, whether that's the approval and respect of our friends, our family, our parents. Approval is a particularly harsh and demanding God. It requires all sorts of sacrifices, doesn't it? We sacrifice money, time. Perhaps eventually you're considering even sacrificing your own standards your own values, your own beliefs, all in this quest to win a certain person's approval and respect. Because we have this idolatrous thought that if only I have this person's respect, then I have what I need. Then then that's enough for me. I I will be somebody. I will have a life worth living. And so we sacrifice to gain the world and we end up losing our soul. See, sin is deceitful like this. And is pernicious like this. And it's so easy to see in reading someone else's story and so very, very difficult for us to see in our own lives. I think that's part of why the Bible gives us these things. So we have the example, we read it and we say, ah, this is how sin works. And then hopefully the Spirit helps us and he pushes that on our own hearts and he helps us to apply it to our own lives and say, yes, that is how sin works. And it's not just in other people. That's how it works in us. That's its... It's M.O., that's what it does. And so Samuel, in this passage, he's coming with this word of great mercy, and he's saying to the people, put away those false gods. He's saying, leave them, repent, don't trust in them, don't put your hope in them. He says, instead, direct your heart to the Lord, and he will deliver you. He will deliver you. False gods make great promises, and every single time they end up enslaving us. God is the one who can deliver us. And that's the mercy. That's the mercy that comes with repentance. Repentance brings freedom. So we see something of the mercy that this passage begins with. 
And then we see the, God's method. God's method in this passage, after Samuel has confronted the people and he's offered them God's mercy and repentance, he gathers them together to seek the Lord. And in verse 5, it begins with prayer. Samuel himself is, is gathering the people. He says, I will pray to the Lord for you. And so they're gathering here at, at Mizpah. All Israel is gathering at Mizpah uh, for a worship service. And we're going to see a lot of God's method in this. How does he free his people? Well, first of all, he gathers them for worship. Samuel is praying. We see in verse 6 that here they are. They, they gather at Mizpah for this worship service. They, uh, they draw water and pour it out before the Lord. And they fast before the Lord. And they repent of their sins. They're confessing. Right, it's in verse 6 where the people are saying, we have sinned against the Lord. We have sinned against the Lord. So the people are coming together and they gather together and the first thing they do is they respond to that merciful call to repentance and they have a time of confession. They, they agree with Samuel and more importantly, they agree with the Lord about what they have done and they simply just confess. They simply put that out on the table. They, they open their hearts to the Lord and say, yes, we have sinned. And then in verse 7, this is, this is interesting. When the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And the people of Israel are very afraid. And I think that is one of the key points that the story makes. When the Philistines hear what is happening, they recognize something important. That worship is an act of war against the false gods. When the people of Israel gather together to worship and to confess their sins to the Lord, the false gods feel attacked. And they are attacked. They are attacked by our repentance. They are attacked by our confessing sins before the Lord. They are attacked when the people of Israel gather together to worship and to fast before the Lord together, to agree with God's judgment that they were in sin in this, and to confess the sins. That seems to us like a very vulnerable act where Israel is itself in this moment very weak, confessing that they are sinful before the Lord, but spiritually speaking, they are so powerful in that moment because they're confessing sins and the evil forces are attacked by that. And they recognize it, to their credit, they recognize it, and they are going to come against Israel in war. It's not unlike, there's a story in Acts 19, if you remember, Paul is in Ephesus, and Paul is preaching the gospel in Ephesus, and all the silversmiths of the city, if you remember, they recognize what is going on and they recognize this is going to put us out of business because their main job was crafting these little idols that people had in their homes and that they would worship and that they would bow before. And the silversmiths recognized when the gospel is being preached, that's really bad for our business of making idols. And so they're the ones who stir up the town to a riot. See, the false gods are always fearful of the true God. The thing that the false gods fear is repentance. It's confession of sin. It's worshiping and fasting before the Lord. It's when people are humbling themselves and laying themselves out before God in an act of, of confession. That's actually very perceptive of the false gods, that repentance is an act of war. And so here they are, we have this picture. Israel is gathered together for worship, for confession, and for fasting. The Philistines are going to come against them in war to attack them. And how do we see that it ends? I think what we see is actually a very clear picture 
of gospel realities. Here's these people that they're afraid. Israel is now afraid. They cry out to Samuel because they see the people coming. And here is Samuel who's in this role. It's kind of a unique role in the Old Testament. He's acting as their king, right? He's ruling over the people. He's acting as their prophet who's speaking the word of the Lord to them. And he's acting as their priest. All at the same time, he's praying to the Lord on their behalf. And he's going to take this lamb and offer it as a sacrifice. And that's the the key moment in this story, that when Samuel offers the sacrifice, when the lamb is offered to the Lord, God comes against the Philistines with great thunder and they're routed before the people. Think of the gospel picture. Here's the people. They're afraid. They're under attack. And God is going to provide salvation for the people by the sacrifice of a lamb. No, see, this is when the people, they've just confessed their sins. Right? They've agreed with the Lord. That, that Confession is such an act of vulnerability. That's why it, it can be very scary. It can be humbling. It, it feels humiliating. It's very vulnerable to open yourself before the Lord like that, to, to just say, yeah, I agree, I'm a... You know, I have sinned. And to admit these things that we often, every bone in our body wants to to conceal that, we want to cover that up, right? We want to pretend it doesn't exist. We want to sweep it under the rug. It's such an act of vulnerability. And at that very moment of vulnerability, here come the Philistines to attack them. Think about what the Israelites must have been thinking in that moment with just... You know, in great vulnerability, we've just opened our hearts before the Lord, we've confessed our sins, and here comes his judgment. They, that's what they must think, right? That, oh great, this is exactly what we thought was going to happen, that if we were so vulnerable as to confess our sins, that he would crush us for them. Right? He would know our sins, and he would bring his wrath in great judgment because of our sins. Which is a very... Uh, just by our own human nature, that's kind of what we tend to think. Is, this is part of why repentance can be scary. We're afraid that if God really knew the depths of the sin in our hearts, he would judge us for it. He would come against us with his wrath and his condemnation. And, and so you finish confessing and you look up and here comes the enemy army. And they must think, great, this is exactly what we feared was going to happen. God was going to judge us if he just knew our sin. Of course, we know he knows our sin. But notice what happens in the story. There is a mediator. There's a third party here. It's not just Israel and the Philistines. There's a mediator who offers a sacrifice on their behalf. And he cries out to the Lord on their behalf. And the Lord accepts the sacrifice. And in that moment, the lamb is slaughtered. And the anger of the Lord turns away. And the people are delivered. Right? The anger of the Lord is, is appeased and instead he attacks their enemies on their behalf and the people are delivered and saved. You see how that foreshadows so clearly, even though this is Old Testament, it foreshadows so clearly the death of Christ. Where here we are in the same position as the Philistines, we know our sins. We know how our own hearts have been tempted to, to wander away from the Lord, how we're tempted by our own idolatries how we have often been unfaithful and we have sought out life and purpose and identity and joy and hope. We've sought that in all the wrong things. Right? These things that, that are good gifts from God and instead we've twisted them and we've made idols out of them. 
And so we've sinned. We're guilty. We know we deserve condemnation for those things. But Jesus is our mediator. Right? First Timothy tells us there is one mediator between God and man, and it is the man Christ Jesus. And at just the right time, while we were yet sinners, deserving death, Jesus Christ cries out on your behalf. And Jesus offers the perfect sacrifice. Right? The lamb is slaughtered at the cross. And in that moment, all the wrath and all the condemnation that, that we know full well that we justly deserve for our sin, all of that instead falls on the lamb who is slain. And because of that, he, he receives in his body the wrath of God that we deserve for our sins. And so here we are confessing those sins and there's some vulnerability and there's some fear in that to make known our sins to God, to say, yes, we have done these things. We have offended a very powerful and a very holy God. But in that very moment is where we find the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ offering himself, standing in the gap, saying, I take those sins on my shoulders and he receives in his own body the punishment that was due to us for our sins. And see, we have the mediator who offers the perfect sacrifice, and the wrath of God is turned away. And instead of that wrath coming on us for the ones who committed the sins, he instead destroys the enemy. See, this passage is teaching us that salvation for God's people comes through sacrifice. It comes through the substitutionary sacrifice of the Lamb, now, notice what doesn't happen in the story. And, and see, here's the alternative. That, that's what we see. We see the picture of salvation through sacrifice and through confession. Through, salvation through repentance and the substitutionary death of the Lamb. For a lot of us, if we were writing the story, we would get to this point where the enemy is coming and the people would cry out, Lord, make us stronger so that we are sufficient to meet the challenge. Lord, make me strong. Give me all the strength so that I can do it on my own. Isn't that, a lot of times that's my prayers, right? Lord, I feel fearful because of what's happening. Will you make me very strong? God's way is actually the opposite, isn't it? God doesn't make his people stronger. He asks his people to admit their own weakness, to admit their own need, to confess their sins, to trust in the sufficiency of, of a sacrifice of someone else. And that's the path of salvation. That is the path of salvation. See, it's just human nature to say, Lord, help me to overcome all my obstacles under my own strength. And I think that is so often the God that we think we want. Right? We think we want the God who exists to serve our own needs. We think we want the God who exists to help us uh, achieve our agendas and our own ways. But the mercy here in this story and throughout the Bible is that the God we get is far greater than that. The God we get is often very counterintuitive to us. We think we need to be made stronger. God says, no, just admit your weakness and rely on my strength. That he is the one who provides for us. And, and, and Paul is actually very clear that God's power is not made perfect in our strength. God's power is made perfect in our weakness. God's power is made perfect in that, in that moment of humility, in that moment of vulnerability, in that moment of, of saying, it's not so much that I will be able to overcome the trials, but rather when I confess my sins to the Lord, there is freedom. And when I confess my sins, there is salvation. 
And when I confess my sins, I find life. That, I, that every bone in me, naturally speaking, is a fearful of that and thinks that confessing will just lead to condemnation. But the beauty of the gospel is that in confession, there is grace and there is salvation. And so we trust not in ourselves, we trust in Christ. Now, I want us to see also the memorial. And this is perhaps the the passage that makes this story so memorable to us is the conclusion in verse 13. That here's where God has, has routed the Philistines before the eyes of the Israelites. And here's this great... You can imagine what a time of rejoicing this is and what a time of celebration and thanksgiving. Uh, it's an act of just pure grace. Pure grace that God has done this for them. And in order that they might then remember what God has done, Samuel builds a memorial. We see Samuel takes a stone. This is verse uh, 12. He takes a stone and he set it up between Mizpah and Shen and he called its name Ebenezer saying, till now, the Lord has helped us. Till now, the Lord has helped us. And he calls it Ebenezer. And uh, Some of you uh, have sung this song, from this verse from Come Thou Fount, your whole lives, where we sing, Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I've come. I don't know how many years I sang that for without knowing what an Ebenezer is. But this is where that line comes from. An Ebenezer uh, it, it is a monument and it's, it means a stone of help. It's two Hebrew words put together. Eben means stone. Azer means help, just like the name Ezra means God is my help. Eben Ezer means a stone of help. So it's this stone that Samuel takes and he sets it up as a monument, saying God is our help. Until now he has helped us. Now here's the wisdom in this memorial, this monument that Samuel sets up. Because there's two things in this story. First, there is the actual salvation itself. And how great, how wonderful. God has helped his people. He's saved them from their enemies. He's delivered them. But that's only the first thing. That's not the end. To set up a memorial, Samuel is saying, it's equally important now that we remember that. That we remember what God has done. In fact, that we must begin now to live our lives in light of this act of salvation. Right, the salvation itself is great, but now we must allow that salvation by grace to shape our lives moving forward. We must become a changed people because of it. And so he sets up a memorial to say, we must remember. Right? We must never allow ourselves to forget what God has done in saving his people by the blood of this lamb. We must have a memorial to it. We all know, do we not, how easy it is for our hearts to wander? How easy it is to forget. How easy it is for us to go on and live our lives as though none of this had happened. As though there were no significance to any of this. And so Samuel here is going to set up this stone so that every time Israel passes this way, they will see this memorial and they'll be reminded. They'll be reminded that the reason they are here today, the reason they are free, the reason they are living in their own land is because the Lord saved them. And now remember, this is not our own doing. It's not because we were good enough. It's not because we were smart enough or strong enough or clever enough. We didn't earn this. This was God's doing. And so here's a memorial, and it's, it's meant in many ways to humble them. Right? Because they see that, and they have to remember this story and remember, we were so foolish 
we were so proud. We had gone our own way, right? If not for our own sins, we would not have gotten into that dilemma, and yet the Lord was merciful to us. God loved us despite our sins, and he saved us, right? This is what memorials do. This is what they're for, right? We set up a memorial when there's something that we want to remember. But the key is to remember what we're remembering. Right? This is a memorial to the pure grace of God. Unlike so many that we have, we have lots of memorials, especially maybe more out east to, to great military victories. Right? And those are memorials you set up because you want to remember that we won this battle. Right? It was our military strength, it was our might that conquered the enemy. This is actually the opposite. And this is because this is not a memorial to them. It's a memorial to God and to what he had done for them. It's a memorial to his grace. See, a lot of the memorials, if we were just trying to think of examples, so many of them are set up in order to engender feelings of, of pride. Right? This is a memorial that's exactly the opposite. That's meant to engender humility and gratitude and joy and faith. You see, I, I know for a lot of us, if we are in that moment sort of around New Year's of looking back, I know for some of us 2019 was a pre pretty tough year. And maybe you're going into this new year thinking, I don't want to remember this last year. I, I would just as soon forget it as soon as possible and move forward and be done with it. But when we make memorials, remember, this is not a memorial that Samuel makes to commemorate this great season of life. This, this golden age that Israel was in that he wants to always remember how good things were. It's quite the opposite, isn't it? He's making a memorial so that when they see it, they will remember what a mess they had made of things and yet how faithful God was to them. How he never let them go. How he was walking with them hand in hand every step of the way. And by his mercy and his grace, he looked on them in love and he provided for their every need. That's what this memorial is. And for some of us, you may look at this last year and that may be exactly what you need to remember. Not that it was a great year, not that it held all sorts of highs and joys for you, but that we can still confess by faith God has been with us. God is the one who never lets us go. God is the one who is faithful to his word every step of the way. And so here, Samuel sets up this memorial in order that when they saw it, it would reframe the way they thought about their lives. Right? And that's what a memorial is meant to do. The memorial itself, it doesn't change their life. It doesn't take away the difficulties of life. It doesn't take away any of the trials that they went through, but it does reframe them, doesn't it? Doesn't it help to put those trials in a different perspective? Right? A different picture frame so that they can now look and, and not... Not only, you know, they're not going to despair, but they see that in the, in the perspective of grace, in the frame of God's faithfulness. So when they look back, it's not despair, it's not shame, it's not bitterness. It's more of a humble gratitude right, that engenders this new Christian joy, this Christian humility, that God is faithful, God's plan is good, God's timing is perfect, even when we don't understand. And isn't that what it is to walk by faith? See, when we celebrate New Year's, to me it always feels like this time of, 
of perhaps making a memorial. And perhaps it's not a large stone, maybe it's just a, a note in a journal or a note on a piece of paper that, that you stick in your Bible, somewhere you remember it, but it's, it's metaphorically, it's putting a stake in the ground and saying, this far the Lord has been faithful. This far the Lord has helped us to be this actual very practical aid so that when you see that, you, you reflect on it and it helps you to live by faith. Right? So, so if you're reflecting on the year that has just passed, um, you know, if I could offer one, one small suggestion, don't evaluate 2019 simply based on, on only uh, what you did or did not accomplish, the blessings that you did or did not receive, the trials that perhaps you did or did not have to endure in this last year. But rather, we are called to bring all of those things and to look at them by faith. Right, to reflect on those things in light of our memorial, perhaps even looking at this table in front of us. The Lord's Supper is a memorial. The Lord's Supper is a memorial to our sin and our foolishness, but God's overcoming mercy. God's grace and his faithfulness and his love to us that overcomes all those things. Every week when we come to this table, we are sort of metaphorically coming back to our Ebenezer, right? to this memorial that God has given to say, every time we pass this table, let that table reframe the way we think about life. So that we don't just look at our lives by sight, by the flesh, but rather by faith we see everything in life, the highs and the lows, all under the umbrella of the faithfulness and the goodness of God the God who is faithful to you, who walks with you, even through the valley of the shadow of death. So that the, the dominant feeling is therefore not uh, happiness or sadness, but rather it's humility and gratitude and faith and joy. We come to the table and we come back, passing the Ebenezer, passing the memorial. And that's how we look forward as well. Our hope for the new year going forward is not that we have sufficiency in ourselves. It's not that we have great things on the horizon that we know are coming our way. But we have hope going forward because the Lord is with you. He walks beside you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. And we remember that, that God is faithful even in the worst of our times. He never leaves us. So let me encourage you, bring all your reflections, all your anticipations to this table. We eat, we drink, we walk by faith. One of the great old hymns that we sing so often, Amazing Grace, do we not sing this verse? Through many dangers, toils, and snares, we have already come. T'was grace that brought us safe this far, and grace will lead us home. It's a memorial to sing that, to say, this far the Lord has helped us, and we walk by faith because of that. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we are thankful for Christ. We are thankful for uh, your word which points us to Christ, your word which can at the very same time humble us because of our sin and give us great joy and, and rejoicing in Christ. Give us great vulnerability and confession, but pour on top of that great security in your mercy and grace towards us. Lord, we pray that you would help us by the power of your spirit. May we walk 
by faith, entering this new week, this new month, this new year, even this new decade. Lord, may we approach it walking by faith as those who trust in all things in the God of our salvation and in the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. Lord, do this, we pray, for Jesus' glory. It's in his name. Amen.